Chapters 26 and 27 of Beasts, Men, and Gods. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Beasts, Men, and Gods by Ferdinand Ossendowski. Chapter 26 The Band of White Hunghutsis. We arrived at Narabanshi late at night on the third day out. As we were approaching, we noticed several riders who, as soon as they had seen us, galloped quickly back to the monastery. For some time we looked for the camp of the Russian detachment without finding it. The Mongols led us into the monastery, where the Hutuktu immediately received me. In his yurta sat Chultan Bailey. There he presented me with hatiks, and said to me, "'The very God has sent you here to us in this difficult moment!' It seems Domojirov had arrested both the presidents of the Chambers of Commerce, and had threatened to shoot Prince Chultan. Both Domojirov and Hun Boldan had no documents legalizing their activities. Chultan Bailey was preparing to fight with them. I asked them to take me to Domojirov. Through the dark I saw four big yurtas and two Mongol sentinels with Russian rifles. We entered the Russian Noyan's tent. A very strange picture was presented to our eyes. In the middle of the yurta the brazier was burning. In the usual place for the altar stood a throne, on which the tall, thin, grey-haired Colonel Domodjirov was seated. He was only in his undergarments and stockings, was evidently a little drunk, and was telling stories. Around the brazier lay twelve young men in various picturesque poses. My officer companion reported to Domodjirov about the events in Uliasitai, and during the conversation I asked Domojirov where his detachment was encamped. He laughed and answered, with a sweep of his hand, "'This is my detachment!' I pointed out to him that the form of his orders to us in Uliasitai had led us to believe that he must have a large company with him. Then I informed him that Lieutenant Colonel Mikhailov was preparing to cross swords with the Bolshevik force approaching Uliasitai. "'What?' he exclaimed with fear and confusion. "'The Reds?' We spent the night in his yurta, and, when I was ready to lie down, my officer whispered to me, "'Be sure to keep your revolver handy,' to which I laughed and said, "'But we are in the centre of a white detachment, and therefore in perfect safety.' "'Uh-huh,' answered my officer, and finished the response with one eye closed. The next day— I invited Domojirov to walk with me over the plain, when I talked very frankly with him about what had been happening. He and Hun Baldon had received orders from Baron Ungern simply to get into touch with General Bakich, but instead they began pillaging Chinese firms along the route, and he had made up his mind to become a great conqueror. On the way he had run across some of the officers who deserted Colonel Casagrandi and formed his present band. I succeeded in persuading Domojirov to arrange matters peacefully with Chultan Bailey, and not to violate the treaty. He immediately went ahead to the monastery. As I returned, I met a tall Mongol with a ferocious face, dressed in a blue silk outer coat. It was Hun Boldon. He introduced himself and spoke with me in Russian. I had only time to take off my coat in the tent of Domojirov, when a Mongol came running to invite me to the yurta of Hun Boldon. The prince lived just beside me in a splendid blue yurta. 
knowing the Mongolian custom, I jumped into the saddle and rode the ten paces to his door. Hun Boldan received me with coldness and pride. "'Who is he?' he inquired of the interpreter, pointing to me with his finger. I understood his desire to offend me, and I answered in the same manner, thrusting out my finger toward him, and turning to the interpreter with the same question in a slightly more unpleasant tone. "'Who is he, high prince and warrior, or shepherd and brute?' Boldon at once became confused, and, with trembling voice and agitation in his whole manner, blurted out to me that he would not allow me to interfere in his affairs, and would shoot every man who dared to run counter to his orders. He pounded on the low table with his fist, and then rose up and drew his revolver. But I was much travelled among the nomads, and had studied them thoroughly—princes, lamas, shepherds, and brigands. I grasped my whip, and striking it on the table with all my strength, I said to the interpreter, "'Tell him that he has the honour to speak with neither Mongol nor Russian, but with a foreigner, a citizen of a great and free state. Tell him he must first learn to be a man, and then he can visit me, and we can talk together.' I turned and went out. Ten minutes later Hun Boldan entered my yurta, and offered his apologies. I persuaded him to parley with Chultan Bailey, and not to offend the free Mongol people with his activities. That very night all was arranged. Hun Boldan dismissed his Mongols and left for Kabdo, while Domojirov, with his band, started for Jasaktu Khan to arrange for the mobilization of the Mongols there. With the consent of Chultan Bailey, he wrote to Wang Tsautsun a demand to disarm his guard, as all of the Chinese troops in Urga had been so treated, but this letter arrived after Wang had bought camels to replace the stolen horses, and was on his way to the border. Later Lieutenant Colonel Mikhailov sent a detachment of fifty men, under the command of Lieutenant Strigini, to overhaul Wang, and receive their arms. End of chapter 26 Chapter 27 Mystery in a Small Temple Prince Chultan Bailey and I were ready to leave the Narabanchi Kure. While the Hutuktu was holding service for the Sate in the Temple of Blessing, I wandered around through the narrow alleyways between the walls of the houses of the various grades of Lama Jelongs, Getuls, Cheji, and Rabjampa, of schools where the learned doctors of theology or Muramba taught together with the doctors of medicine or Talama of the residences for students called Bandi, of stores, archives, and libraries. When I returned to the yurta of the Hutuktu, he was inside. He presented me with a large hatik and proposed a walk around the monastery. His face wore a preoccupied expression from which I gathered that he had something he wished to discuss with me. As we went out of the yurta, the liberated president of the Russian Chamber of Commerce and a Russian officer joined us. The Hutuktu led us to a small building just back of a bright yellow stone wall. "'In that building once stopped the Dalai Lama and Bagdu Khan, and we always paint the buildings yellow where these holy persons have lived. Enter!' The interior of the building was arranged with splendour. On the ground floor was the dining-room, furnished with richly carved, heavy black-wood Chinese tables, and cabinets filled with porcelains and bronze. 
Above were two rooms, the first a bedroom hung with heavy yellow silk curtains. A large Chinese lantern richly set with coloured stones hung by a thin bronze chain from the carved wooden ceiling-beam. Here stood a large square bed covered with silken pillows, mattresses, and blankets. The framework of the bed was also of the Chinese blackwood and carried, especially on the post that held the roof-like canopy, finely executed carvings with the chief motif, the conventional dragon devouring the sun. By the side stood a chest of drawers completely covered with carvings, setting forth religious pictures. Four comfortable easy-chairs completed the furniture, save for the low oriental throne which stood on a dais at the end of the room. "'Do you see this throne?' said the Hutuktu to me. One night in winter several horsemen rode into the monastery, and demanded that all the Jelongs and Getuls, with the Hutuktu and Kampo at their head, should congregate in this room. Then one of the strangers mounted the throne, where he took off his bashlik, or cap-like head-covering. All of the lamas fell to their knees as they recognized the man who had been long ago described in the sacred bulls of Dalai Lama, Tashi Lama, and Bagdo Khan. He was the man to whom the whole world belongs, and who has penetrated into all the mysteries of nature. He pronounced a short Tibetan prayer, blessed all his hearers, and afterwards made predictions for the coming half-century. This was thirty years ago, and in the interim all his prophecies are being fulfilled. During his prayers before that small shrine in the next room, this door opened of its own accord. The candles and lights before the altar lighted themselves, and the sacred braziers without coals gave forth great streams of incense that filled the room. And then, without warning, the king of the world and his companions disappeared from among us. Behind him remained no trace save the folds in the silken throne coverings, which smoothed themselves out, and left the throne as though no one had sat upon it. The Hutuktu entered the shrine, kneeled down, covering his eyes with his hands, and began to pray. I looked at the calm, indifferent face of the golden Buddha, over which the flickering lamps threw changing shadows, and then turned my eyes to the side of the throne. It was wonderful and difficult to believe, but I really saw there the strong, muscular figure of a man with a swarthy face, of stern and fixed expression about the mouth and jaws, thrown into high relief by the brightness of the eyes. Through his transparent body, draped in white raiment, I saw the Tibetan inscriptions on the back of the throne. I closed my eyes and opened them again. No one was there, but the silk throne covering seemed to be moving. Nervousness, I thought. Abnormal and overemphasized impressionability growing out of the unusual surroundings and strains. The Hutuktu turned to me and said, "'Give me your hattik. I have the feeling that you are troubled about those whom you love, and I want to pray for them. And you must pray also. Importune God and direct the sight of your soul to the king of the world who was here and sanctified this place.' The Hutuktu placed the hattik on the shoulder of the Buddha, and prostrating himself on the carpet before the altar, whispered the words of prayer. Then he raised his head and beckoned me to him with a slight movement of his hand. Look at the dark space behind the statue of Buddha, and he will show your beloved to you. Readily obeying his deep-voiced command, 
I began to look into the dark niche behind the figure of the Buddha. Soon out of the darkness began to appear streams of smoke, or transparent threads. They floated in the air, becoming more and more dense and increasing in number, until gradually they formed the bodies of several persons and the outlines of various objects. I saw a room that was strange to me, with my family there, surrounded by some whom I knew, and others whom I did not. I recognized even the dress my wife wore. Every line of her dear face was clearly visible. Gradually the vision became too dark, dissipated itself into the streams of smoke and transparent threads, and disappeared. Behind the golden Buddha was nothing but the darkness. The Hutuktu arose, took my hatik from the shoulder of the Buddha, and handed it to me with these words, "'Fortune is always with you and with your family. God's goodness will not forsake you.' We left the building of the unknown king of the world, where he had prayed for all mankind and had predicted the fate of peoples and states. I was greatly astonished to find that my companions had also seen my vision, and to hear them describe to me in minute detail the appearance and the clothes of the persons whom I had seen in the dark niche behind the head of the Buddha. Footnote. In order that I might have the evidence of others on this extraordinarily impressive vision, I asked them to make protocols or affidavits concerning what they saw. This they did, and I now have these statements in my possession. End of footnote. The Mongol officer also told me that Chultum Bailey had the day before asked the Hutuktu to reveal to him his fate in this important juncture of his life, and in this crisis of his country. But the Hutuktu only waved his hand in an expression of fear, and refused. When I asked the Hutuktu for the reason of his refusal, suggesting to him that it might calm and help Chultum Bailey as the vision of my beloved had strengthened me, the Hutuktu knitted his brow, and answered, No, the vision would not please the prince. His fate is black. Yesterday I thrice sought his fortune on the burned shoulder-blades, and with the entrails of sheep, and each time came to the same dire result the same dire result. He did not really finish speaking, but covered his face with his hands in fear. He was convinced that the lot of Chultan Bailey was black as the night. In an hour we were behind the low hills that hid the Narabanchi Kure from our sight. End of chapter.